0: This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Tamahome.
1: Eric. And I'm Jenny.
0: Hello. How are you guys?
1: Hi. Good morning.
0: We're going to talk about Neuromancer by William Gibson.
2: Great. So that's so, what was really going on in 1984.
0: Was it 1984? It came out. Yeah. Felt like it was earlier for
3: some reason.
1: He wrote it on a typewriter. What's that? I know. <laughs> he had well, all of cyberspace in his head.
0: <laughs> uh, I think in the introduction to the audiobook, um, he says uh, basically the the things that he knew about. Uh, best are the things that work least in the book. Oh, that's funny. So, yeah, it, when uh, at one point early in the novel, he's uh, cases is, is uh, trying to sell three megabytes of RAM. Wow! <laughs> and uh, we, I was trying to understand how that could be valuable to anybody, <laughs> but thinking back to 1984, my computer uh, had like. Maybe 30 kilobytes of RAM. So,
2: Seems to me, if yes. I recall correctly, I was using floppy disks, then it held 56K each mm-hmm. yeah. or something. Yeah, That's about right.
3: Well, the Commodore 64 was 64K of RAM. Yeah, that's uh, right. it's not even a megabyte.
2: But I had an Apple IIe in, in 84, I remember vividly, because I was living out of the country, so I can identify 84 easily. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I, I think I had a TI 99 and an Apple II back then and uh, the TI 99 didn't we didn't have, we couldn't afford the disk drive. So we had the tape drive, <laughs> where you take audio cassette tape and you program uh, program the recording uh, from the magazine <coughs> <laughs> into the computer and then the computer transmits that to the cassette. And then every time you want to play that game or whatever it was that you, you programmed in, you have to play the cassette back, and it has to be a perfect connection, or, or the whole program
1: doesn't work. Right. And so. I was six. <laughs> 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 I don't think we had a computer at home that year, but my dad was an engineer, so he worked with them.
0: Hmm. He didn't, he didn't have one at yeah. home?
1: I, I just don't remember. I remember having them at school, though, so maybe.
2: Yeah. Oh, my God. You were six, Jenny. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: My son was 14.
3: Huh. Still, so
0: I was 12, I think. Wait, no, 84. Yeah, some, something like that.
3: 12. Yeah, me too, probably. You're older than me. That's impossible. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, having wish fulfillment. <laughs> oh, no. okay.
1: Well, and I, you know, obviously the Apple II is in 1984, but he wrote it. It was published in 84, so he wrote it before then. So, what he said in the introduction to the 10 year anniversary edition, which is for some reason the one I found to read, um, he was starting to see word processing advertisements, but it was meant for people in business. So, you know, the whole publishing industry was still very much typewriter driven.
3: <laughs> Savages. Yeah, I don't know. It's amazing recall.
1: how far it's come. <laughs> I
2: don't recall where I first read it, but um, he claimed at some point that not only had he never actually touched a computer, um, but his inspiration for the story came from walking down the street and passing a video parlor, video game parlor, um, looking in and seeing the look on the faces of these people. And it was his sense that they were virtually inhabiting another world that was the uh, inspiration for a sense of what constitutes cyberspace
0: tank war europa figures prominently in the book that's uh the game that they go back uh, buying in the arcade and this the thing is is when i was a kid arcade had only one meaning but of course they had arcades hundreds of years ago thousands of years ago um it's, it's like a, an open space with a, a an, covering,
2: an, right? An arc over it.
0: Yeah. And, um, and of course, for me, arcade only meant the place where you go uh, after school or on the weekends to play uh, Spy Hunter and uh, all the other stand-up video games.
3: <laughs> Disktron.
0: Yeah. Sinistar. <laughs> I love Sinistar. That was a great game. Um and in this, in in this, we we actually get that echoed. There's it's at the beginning in Chiba City, uh, Tank War Europa, and somebody nukes the whole world, so the whole arcade lights up when they, like I guess in a casino when you win, right? <laughs> right.
3: I think it's holograms, right?
0: Yeah, some sort of hologram above the above the machine.
3: But yeah, there's a.
0: A lot of, like, it's been a long time since I read this book. I think the last time was uh, maybe 1994 or something. Yeah, maybe 10 years after.
1: Yeah, is this anyone's first reading of the book? Yeah, it's mine. Okay. Wow.
3: I mean, I heard the audio drama on BBC, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but that's all I knew about it.
1: I feel like, I just read it for the first time two years ago, but.
3: Oh, really? I
1: still feel like it changed completely because of all of the science fiction and cyberpunk i've read in the meantime it feels different this time around too no doubt i mean it i guess i can understand more what its place was or something like that like it i understand the significance of it more than i did back then because i remember the first time i read it i just i couldn't care about case at all like as a Mm -hmm. character i just didn't connect with him and i it was really hard to get through the book because of that my first time, but this time it was easier.
0: This is a very special novel. It's, it's uh, like, I I think William Gibson, sort of, he writes the same every time. Yeah. It feels like he, he's writing, basically, he only has one style. And it's a very interesting style, and it's very unique to him. But this this novel came out of nowhere compared to, I mean, I know that he had written some short stories before that, but... Well, yeah if you look at was what was being written at the time, this novel did not look like anything else out there and the things that we can compare it to like um you know I, I almost want to say Alfred bester you know mm-hmm. he's kind of kind of like Alfred bester but he's not really because he doesn't talk about the same things he just has uh, that sort of revolutionary effect that that Alfred Bester has.
1: Well, and the community well, knew it. Totally yeah. I mean, he got the Philip K. Dick Award, the Hugo, and the Nebula for Neuromancer. so that was a pretty good endorsement.
0: It's it's uh it's paperback original too, which is uh you know not the traditional way of of doing books. Right. I guess it it was for a period, but it's a it's a very special book. Even like I remember being blown away. By when I read it the first time. And when I reread it, it was just as powerful. And was, I think the last time I read it, I was traveling in Mexico. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I went into the into the English language bookstore in Mexico City and, and picked up uh, a stack of novels. And one of them was this. And then the, a lot of the other stuff was, you know, contemporary, I guess, to the mid-90s. And uh, none of them worked (laughs) in the same way, you know, they didn't have the power that this novel has. Had and still has, I think.
2: I I certainly agree that the style, this is an important novel. And the the style is, I think, in some ways what is most salient about it. That is, uh, God willing, eventually we won't be worrying about. Corporate uh, conspiracies, and you know, a, a lot of the content of this may fade away, as did say the content of Zamyatin's We. But the style and what it says about human connectedness—that um, I think is is really powerful. But. It came out of nowhere, except, you know, if you look at Johnny Mnemonic or some of the other short stories, it it sort of came out of nowhere, as you say, within the community. I mean, Jenny, used that word, the community. I, I think it's important to remember that in 84, there still was a fairly strong, it's not gone yet either, but then a very strong deprecation of science fiction by the rest of the literary establishment. And so... When we say it came out of nowhere, um, it really came out of nowhere for the the rest of the reading public. Uh, there's a parody of it that appears within a year in The New Yorker. I mean, people who are just wholly differently connected with literature in those days – uh, t- paid notice to this. And I think the reason is that it really doesn't come out of nowhere. It's that people hadn't been noticing the connections between science fiction and other things. I mean, it comes out, it comes out of New Wave. Uh, I mean, the whole cyberpunk movement is a further sort of thematic uh, evolution of New Wave constructed in response to the historical changes between the late 60s and the, and the early 80s. And the new wave is quite self-consciously an effort to use the experimentation that uh, characterized as modernism going all the way back to the first and second decades of the, the 20th century in what stylistically was uh, generally a conservative genre. That is, science fiction intellectually tries to you know have one great new idea per book, but it's mass literature, and it writes with stereotypes, and it typically does not try to demand uh, aesthetic um, education on the part that is the book isn't going to teach you how to be a better reader. Uh, Typically, that's not what happened in science fiction. And along comes the new wave and says, hey, wait a minute, we should be writing books that are as good as literature, as pioneering as literature as anybody else. And and it starts, and, and we see precursors. I mean, sure, Bester is one, but But so is uh, is Chip Delaney, you know, the kind of incredible interpenetration of mythic with real in uh, the Einstein intersection looks an awful lot like the interpenetration of cyberspace and, you know, the world of meat um, here. And the reason I say it doesn't really come out of nowhere, I don't know if if this would be an opportune moment or not, uh, folks, but... um, I've got a whole section of the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock marked up to hmm. show that, in fact, mu- much of what is powerful in Neuromancer is already in that poem from 1917. Yeah, please oh, go for it. Okay, so this this will be meaningful to those who who know the what's in the. So, well, I'll annotate it. Okay, so mm-hmm. so or you guys can annotate it. Uh, to, so I'm. I'm, I'm after an Italian uh, epigram, oh, excuse me, epigraph, um, Proofrock says, Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky. Okay, think of that very firm, famous first line of Neuromancer, right? The sky above the port was the color of a t- television tuned to a dead channel. Like a patient etherized upon a table... The whole beginning of it has to do with, you know, the neuro nerve surgery in Chiba City and mm-hmm. organs thefts. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets. I'm uh, picturing here that scene where a case run, jumps out of the window. And uh, uh, it looks like something right out of Blade Runner, of course, which is two years earlier than this, uh, 1982. Um,
3: yeah, I think he saw Blade Runner before writing the book.
2: it. it, it, it They look connected. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels, Mm. which is, of course, where Case and Molly Yeah. and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, which is the opening scene. Streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask, what is it? Let us go and make our visit. Then going down a little further, there's a section from Proof Rock that sounds almost as if it's talking about the difference between living as a construct, the way Dixie Flatline does, and living the life that we four would consider normal, where you are born and age and die. And indeed, there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back upon the window panes. There will be time. There will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. Right in the beginning, he wants a hole in his face, Lonnie Zone tells Case. Um, I mean, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, bartender says Case, that Lonnie Zone wants that. There will be time to murder and create. And time for all the works and days of hands, which, by the way, is a reference to Hesiod, but that lift and drop a question on your plate, time for you and time for me and time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast of tea. Do I dare, I'm skipping down about ten lines, do I dare disturb the universe, which of course is Case's problem. And I have known the eyes already. I'm thinking of Molly here. I'm thinking of Peter Riviera. And I have known the eyes already, known them all, the eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase. And when I am formulated, sprawling on a pin this is when I'm trapped inside neuromancer winter mute at the end when I am formulated sprawling on a pin when I am pinned and wriggling on the wall then how should I begin to spit out all the butt ends of my days and ways and how should I presume and then Prufrock this is, these are two of the last three stanzas shall I part my hair behind do I dare to eat a peach I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. The at- last scene of Neuromancer. I have heard the mermaids singing each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. And he never saw Molly again. It's the last line. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown till human voices wake us and we drown. Which seems to me a <laughs> I mean, it just sounds to me like, I mean, those of us, as we all are, are familiar with all of what's going on in the book. There it is.
0: Yeah, there, there's certainly some, some not just uh, exa- exact words, but also sort of thematically, it's similar. And even in some it,
2: of the settings, and the yeah. tone, and the despair.
0: Well, I'm the, sorry. Well, what's the background for that For that. Uh, poem because to me the no- this novel especially this time around uh, more explicitly it it was it's kind of like an untethered uh, mor- there's no morality that is obvious to everyone uh, everyone is trying to live up to in this novel there's no there's no background religion there's no well not there's the no white government people none of the char- none of the characters
2: No, no, um, there's the Rastafarian religion. There's no background religion for the white people. Uh,
0: uh, <laughs> uh the Rastafarian religion that's in there is so uh I'm I'm so unfamiliar with it that I can't I can't see much of what they're uh what they're doing there like uh I mean they certainly are talking religiously, but um yeah, I I don't know much about their their religious beliefs so i can't i can't i can't see how they act in conformity with any of that or in in deference to it or any of that but uh, what what is uh j alfred proofrock's uh love song or the love song of j alfred proof proofrock's backstory like what what's the prompt for it
2: um any idea? Tough question. Uh, Elliot is a Midwestern boy with a <clears throat> high-class uh, uh, and well-connected education who is, at this point in his life, now living a fairly crimped life um, in England and uh, trying to make his way. Um, yeah. uh, and and that's really all that I know. I don't know that... Uh, that it's meant to speak to uh, great social movements, although it clearly does say something about uh, the social situation. I mean, the taking of a toast and tea, uh, making visits. This is uh, a kind of formal life that's crumbling because it's 1917, after all, and mm-hmm. uh, we're three years into World War One. If we're living in England,
1: right? You know, I find the connection really touching because. Um, I think when I read these books, it's impossible for me to read any cyberpunk without thinking of my own experience, like in virtual worlds and everything. And when I was in second life, more often I quoted this poem in my profile (laughs) all the time. (laughs) Like it it was my standard kind of, I don't know, outlook. So I hadn't connected it to Neuromancer, but I had connected it to that feeling of virtual space. And so it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's a great connection. I think.
2: Thanks. I I don't know whether or not um, Gibson did it intentionally, but the book is full of all kinds of literary references, and so uh, it it wouldn't surprise me if it were intentional. But even if it's not intentional, uh is so powerful a poem, as as you're suggesting, Jenny, that mm-hmm. you know if one has read it two or three or four times. By the time one's a, a young adult and starts writing a novel, it's not not unreasonable that one is affected.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: I was thinking of um, other books from maybe the late 60s, early 70s, like the, the movement you were talking about. Um, would we way. count Gravity's Rainbow in that? Do you think that's an influence in any way? I was just thinking of the very end of that novel and – how it kind of goes from reality to not feeling very real, right. and that that kind of feeling is in this a lot
2: I think most of Pynchon's work of that period um, resonates with the the notion that there's an underlying conspiracy uh, shaping our lives and uh, that it's corporate but not only corporate. Um, and there's not much we can do about it um, uh, I think it's true in gravity's rainbow I think it's true in V I think it's true but in a much funnier way in the crying of lot 49 um, so yeah I do see connections there I think that's a that's a good a good resonance uh, of course what's what the science fiction you know critics would see as the most clear antecedent is uh, William Burroughs And in fact, I I read a recent review by uh, Lev Grossman, um, in which he said that uh, of Gibson's most recent novel, which he said that uh, Gibson not only writes like Burroughs, um, he's beginning to look like Burroughs. (laughs) Um, So I I found a few pages in uh, in Naked Lunch, um, which is probably Burroughs' most famous work. It's 1959. and he, Go for it. Okay, he he says here. Um, and know this is a, a a book quite bizarrely written. The style is a precursor to Gibson. Um, and There's it's no about no punctuation, right? Uh, there isn't my copy, but um, oh. okay. Um, and he's talking here as he does so often about uh, drugs in this book. Uh, well, the fuzz has my spoon and dropper, and I know they are coming in on my frequency. All right, I mean, we keep getting this frequency uh, of, of feeling in Neuromancer led by this blind pigeon that is a, a person uh, known as Willie the Disc. Uh, he has a round disc mouth lined with sensitive erectile black hairs and so on and so forth. Um, feeling for the f- silent frequency of junk, meaning heroin. So he's addicted. He's caught. Um. That talks about unspeakable Congress uh, of the individual with his dope, and I think we have to remember that that case's entire um, proximal motivation is to free himself from this these sacks of toxin that are presumably inside his body. Although, uh, as far as I can tell, it's like uh, it turns out to be like. Uh, dorothy's red shoes if you just knew enough to click them together in three times and say i want to go home there's no place like home there's no place like home they're gone because we never actually have evidence that he has the toxins in him and we never see them actually being removed so maybe he's just buying a bad story but in in the preface to uh to uh naked lunch burroughs writes junk is the ideal product the ultimate merchandise no sales talk necessary. The client will crawl through a sewer and beg to buy. The junk merchant does not sell his product to the consumer. He sells the consumer to his product. He does not improve and simplify his merchandise. He degrades and simplifies the client. He pays his staff in junk. Junk yields a basic formula of evil virus, the algebra of need. The face of evil is always the face of total need. Um, and it goes on. Um it, it seems is, um, to me that that's, that's that's the sense of what we're caught in. Those are the commodities that people in, in Gibson's world here um, are living with. They are sold to it, not the other way around.
1: Now, is it in that introduction or is it the electric Kool-Aid acid test where they talk about how when you're a junkie, that's the only feeling you have? Like you don't even enjoy sex because all you want is the next hit. I know it's between those two books. Um, and I, I think that's why I, I couldn't finish the electric Kool-Aid acid test because to me, it you know, the drug stuff over and over, it just kind of gets old. And I think that's why I feel disconnected from Case as well because he doesn't have any emotions that he shows until he gets angry. Like, that's the very first time. Well, that,
0: the drugs are used to suppress well, his emotions.
1: right. Right, because that's kind of more of his motivation, and um, but I, I don't connect with that as a reader. I guess I, and it, I, I, it was a difficulty my first time for sure.
2: I haven't read the Electric Light Acid Test since it was in hardback, so you know. Hmm. The, um, but my recollection is that it's it's about LSD, not not this kind of junk at all. Right. Um, I mean, that's Tom Wolfe, not William Burroughs. I
1: oh, I, I know. I, yeah. I connect them together.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Whoa. Sure. I'm just think, picturing Tom Wolfe in his natty white suits and William Burroughs slouching through the streets of Paris. and uh, They'd make a great couple. <laughs> 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 but I, I, I do feel for Case. Um, and I think I feel for Case in part because of his limitations. Sort of, uh, in some sense, the way I feel for Hamlet. Um, a man of decided inaction. Um, case we're told at the beginning made the fatal flaw of stealing from his employer. Um, well, that's you know what Adam does, um, and you know right in the beginning it says he he fell into the flesh. Right,
0: I, th- I like that you you're, you equate God with Adam's employer.
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> he tells him, you know, here's the garden, dress it and keep it, you know, go to yeah, work, man. I guess, I guess that's right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I just
0: never thought about it that way. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and and you're fired. Get out of this
2: garden. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Go make your own. Right. Childbirth, labor, and death, right? Go make your own garden. Begin agriculture, begin history. And what what Neuromancer, that is the character, or whatever you call that, and and Wintermute are trying to do is begin their history by getting out of myth. They are trapped permanently because they are, so far, only constructs. And we see what that means for Dixie Flatline. Dixie Flatline um, wants to die. He says, you know, the one thing I want at the end of this is to be erased. And Neuromancer says, oh, I gave him more than he wanted. And in fact, he doesn't erase him. So he's condemned to perpetual repetition, right? He wants to have true free will, but in fact, he can't. And Case wants to have fruit, 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 true free will. Presumably, he did when he stole from his employer. But but then he doesn't have free will because he's, he's driven by the needs of the neurotoxin or he's driven by his desire for Molly. And uh, to me, when, when he says, Once I had um, a hole and a cigarette, you know, a woman to screw, um, and that, that's the height of what could be as pleasure and, and solace in this world. And now he doesn't even have that. I found that kind of excruciating. The first time I read the book and I saw the, 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 the metallic description of uh, the, the driving mechanical coitus uh, with Molly pounding down on top of case in that coffin, you know, in that so-called coffin, that, that absolutely minimal uh, hotel room. Um, Warehouse space would be a better word for it, and realized that that in this novel was the high moment of emotional connection, of romantic attraction, and saw how Case was driven to try to get at least that back and kept missing it and getting further and further and further away. Um, I I did feel for him seems to me that the sense that our aspirations are limited and even those are beyond us is characteristic of an awful lot of modern life
0: there there's some um, probably something about the era um, at at the time you know that was sort of in the air and in the early 80s the i guess the uh, it's the in the post Watergate era. I think Watergate is even mentioned in this book, isn't it? I think it is. I could be wrong. Um, in fact, uh, you know, looking looking for inspiration, you know, Blade Runner certainly visually this novel this novel is much it's probably even closer than than Dick's novel is visually in the, in Blade Runner's a description of of what Uh, the world looks like, and then there's a story as well. Um, In Neuromancer, the description is the world, and then the story is set in that described world uh, where there's sort of a totemic uh, fascination with the detail of not just color and um, what things are made out of, you know, temper foam and such but also branding this is something i think that's sort of taken over in in uh, his more uh, more recent books gibson's more recent books everything is is about the brand i mean he's written books about brands
2: the pattern recognition is is you know that's it right exactly find the style uh, that sells
0: a, uh, you know he gets in the spacesuit but it's it's not a spacesuit it's the sanyo
2: right <laughs> right
0: and yeah. And uh, some of the products are very unfamiliar, and some of them are very familiar. Um, a lot of Japanese products, I was wondering, uh, is a Hosaka a real product? I, I wonder, is that a computer you could get in, in, uh, in Japan at the time? Because, you know, you think back to Blade Runner, and on the streets they've got like an atari sign right? that's one of the reasons they have to remake the movie is because if they show it in the theaters now people will laugh in the same way that they'll they don't understand the first line of the novel uh the sky above the port was the color of television tuned to a dead channel that's not what we're <laughs> kids who grow up now if they could find a dead channel if they could find if they watch one. tv it would be blue it would be bluer than this <laughs> blue sky Right.
2: You know, um, branding is an important feature in in lots of works. Um, Ian Fleming uses branding in the James Bond books in order to give a certain kind of panache to James Bond. You know, he's... Yeah. You know that we get the brand name of his favorite gin, and of the maker of his suit, and the maker of his watch, and,
0: and his pistol, and which his, is in this book, his Walter PPK, right? Right. Um, and the, what what what's the description of that from this book? It's real. It's actually pretty good. Let me see if I can find it. Yeah, it says, um, uh, "The head was gone. Case lay under the console for a long count of twenty, then stood up." The steel cobra was still in his hand, and it took him a few seconds to remember what it was. He limped away down the alley, nursing his left ankle. Shin's pistol was a fifty-year-old Vietnamese imitation of a South American copy of a Walther PPK, double action on the first shot. With a very rough pull.
2: You you just pointed me you just pointed us to exactly the scene that I mentioned as I was reading Proof Rock of him. That's you picked it up just after he has jumped out of the window, and he's landed and twisted his ankle. Um, There are an awful lot of really important things going on there. One of them, to stick with the branding issue, is that, yes, there's a Walter PPK. Walter, I know you don't pronounce the H, but uh, it's a Walter PPK. um, But when it's in the Bond books, it's used to suggest something about elegance and cosmopolitanism. Here, it's quite the opposite, it's a cheap, not very good Vietnamese copy of a fifty-year-old item, right? In fact, if I look at Blade Runner and I look at the visuals in this book, um, I agree that they are common; that they, they share this. But they don't. What they also share is that the brands are not there for the purpose of saying, "Oh, how cool!" But just the opposite. What if you? Think about what that street looks like. When he lands in that street, it's full of detritus. There's yeah. all of these old pieces of motherboard, if I recall the passage correctly. right? There, there's just all sorts of electronic waste and junk that's everywhere in this world. And when you look through those streets in Blade Runner with the, 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 the rain... The, having just finished but still glistening off everything you see the same thing you see computer parts and discarded electronics so when you see the signs for Atari and you hear, you read the the brand names here in this book I think that it's a way of suggesting these only attract us momentarily because they are today's word and they are neon today but tomorrow they're going to be just a bit of nostalgia, and it won't work, and it'll break in our hands. So I guess I'm saying that, yes, branding is very important, but it can be used as a trope in many ways. In the James Bond book, it's a positive trope in order to build up the hero. In making the world of this novel, which you, Jesse, are saying is really the, the most important thing is the world itself, the branding is a way of telling us how hollow and hypocritical and ineffectual the world is.
1: Yeah, and it reminds me of um, Stand on Zanzibar, which I recently read, and that's from 1967, but it's a portrayal of the future of 2010 and the whole sense of information overload from all this commercialization and what that does to you as a human. And, it, that's and a I, great the connection's a good... Yeah. I think
2: I'd like to read that book. If I recall correctly, Jenny, the, the opening scene, and again, I... 30 years ago for me, or whatever, 40. But the opening scene of Zanzibar, Stand on Zanzibar is someone listening to an incoming newscast with yeah. just a, a gazillion different, you know, things. And you just, add all pieces and chunks, and you just, you, you, your mind can't deal with it. It's right. the same kind of speed we see here. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, very good. I never thought of that.
0: Um, by the way, I, I, I think I know where uh, Gibson got the... The implants that are going to decay in, in uh, not implants there, the toxin sacs, right? <laughs> that's, that's from uh, Escape from New York. That's uh, another movie from, I guess, 80, 81, 82, uh, just like uh, Blade Runner. Uh, Snake Plissken is forced to go on this, uh, the heist, which is to uh, get the president out of New York, right? And they inject him, inject him with. Uh, uh, explosives that are are going to uh, detonate <laughs> in 24 hours or whatever it is. Well, so and he has to come back.
1: It's kind of connected to his earlier short story Johnny Mnemonic, which was 1981, I think. Which is the similar similar idea of the data in the brain that the person doesn't have any control over, but it could kill him. Right. And he's just a courier, seepage, he,
2: right? Yeah, right. And and he but and, and he is simply trying to get out from being on in, in the thrall to corporate uh, employers.
1: There's a lot of yeah, fear under the, all of that, isn't there? The fear of what technology is going to bring.
2: <laughs> absolutely.
0: Well, if you look at the the world, uh, and there's a scene quite late in the book where uh, Case, I guess, is describing his youth. Just very briefly, he outlines his 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 youth growing up on the streets and he talks about making making a fortress on a roof out of out of all that uh detritus um i think a a better word for it if we're going back to dick would be (laughs) kipple all right that's that's (laughs) what it's called in um in do Androids android street like Sheep. all that kipple that's lying around the the stuff that just (laughs) accumulates and multiplies and uh, creates itself <laughs> in almost a sexual reproductive way <laughs> on the streets.
2: What's that Dick novel? Um, uh, is it is it Martian Time Slip? What's the one where the main character is solving problems in the newspaper, but actually protecting the world from alien invasion? And he
0: uh, might be. I uh, um, think that is uh, Galactic Pot Healer.
2: Uh, no, oh, phooey. I'm gonna. Walk over to my desk in a moment and find it. But in sure. this one, it's also kibble. And But the thing is that the world is losing its pieces. That Not is, kibble. Kipple. Right, right. Sorry. Kibble. And it's because the whole world is just devolving. More and more is disappearing from the world. That is, we're getting – the world is getting less dense. There's stuff going away.
0: Yeah. people. Uh, all the people who can are leaving the planet because it's sort of
3: dying.
2: Right. Right.
3: I think he says Going in the introduction that the United States is gone. Yeah, he said he said in the
0: introduction you can't prove that the United States exists, at least as a, a unified whole anymore. It's <laughs> just the sprawl, um, which is the whole East Coast is one big city. Oh yeah, one big city. Um, but yeah, he he talks about growing up as a as a youth on the streets of the sprawl, and it sounds like. He's, you know, it's not like he grew up like in India as a street kid, or in Rio de Janeiro as a street kid. You know, this is the society uh, sort of gone, gone far past where we are now. Uh, And it's, it's, it's like so, it's so far gone that people don't even bother to complain about how evil the corporations are. It's just assumed that that's how things are. And everybody's out to get what they can for themselves. Everybody's uh, working the street, trying to make deals, and and they've turned to to decorating their bodies as opposed to decorating their homes. I, I
2: I think that's right, but I think one of the reasons that I shouldn't say but and using that, I I feel that. Uh, that Gibson has built something that has mythic power. Um, yeah. I mean, Case, in that scene that you described, it's important that Case hobbles off. And in the penultimate scene, um, he's reminded of that, that limp, that lame brawn, that little robot that's been around in the book, but one of its legs isn't working right. Case is an Oedipal character, Case is lamefoot, just as the word Oedipus means, and he has been disobedient, um, and he's trying to find uh, a connection that uh, will—it is a sexual connection, among other things—that will give him the authority to actually have a world of his own, the way Oedipus does. And he fails, and he fails to be able to find an appropriate relationship with mother—oh, sorry, Molly, oops, sorry, Mary, (laughs) Uh, right? I mean— those M's are not
3: right? <laughs> right. I mean, so Molly is his mother? Oh no, <laughs>
2: no, not really. But but when Mo- when Molly goes into the hotel and uses a false name, she goes in as Mary Kolodny right, uh, Kolodny meaning frozen in Slavic languages, and Mary, yeah. of course, right? I mean, uh, the, the, the mythic connections here are, are throughout the book. It's not uh, accidental that he fell into the flesh, that this was the fall, that everybody in the sprawl is known by their single identification number. Well, here in the U.S., I'm known by my SSN, my social security number. In the sprawl, you're known by your SIN, which is assigned to you at birth,
0: we have that—it's social insurance number.
2: Well, but you see how it's original sin.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> right. I mean, and the man is, after all, a case study,
0: mind uh, you. Uh, but you also have to remember that um, <laughs> that Gibson had a sin. Um, he, of course, he's he from did. Vancouver, right? Uh, well,
2: he's <laughs> not from Vancouver. He is now no, no, in no,
0: Vancouver. No, he's he, born he, in the U.S. Yes, but he has been assigned to sin.
2: (laughs) I understand that. But he calls it... I understand that. But the fact that he knows that the initials have already been used in the world does not diminish the fact that he also knows what sin means, right? And makes a point about it coming at birth. So all of those stories, I mean, Oedipus and and the, the fall, have to do with knowledge. And that's, of course, what's going on here. I mean... That neuromancer wants knowledge. Neuromancer can't get. Case is in the situation he's in because he stole from his employer. That is, he transferred symbols from one location to another. Right? It's not like he took you know a piece of art. He stole money, and but he didn't steal money. He just moved something from one electronic storage place to another electronic storage place. I space. actually
0: think it was a physical object in that case. I think he was saying that. Uh, he, he, he was gonna try and sell the object or whatever it was.
2: Uh, I, I doesn't really matter. Because the impression the, I get the, is that the yeah. the things that are being stolen here are things like the ice, that they they function as if they were physical. Yeah, right. He, but they are in fact the, pieces it's of it's a court.
0: metaphor. He says that the whole all of cyberspace is a metaphor, but it certainly doesn't. Uh, it, it's not that way in the story right in the novel it's not a it's not treated <laughs> metaphorically
2: no it's treated it's as, not, as real stuff that's right but the real stuff i mean when we say that dixie flatline is a construct and he says erase this thing i mean dixie flatline isn't the piece of silicon dixie flatline is the code he is the information
3: yeah right, right? the I mean, program
2: exactly and right. and and that's read
3: only <laughs> yes, exactly. He wants to have a RAM storage. Well, so he can write.
2: So he can stop repeating himself. I mean, that line on page—well, on my copy, it's page one thirty-two. Well, I've got three different copies, but yeah. I, 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 it's almost the exact center of the novel is where Case and Dixie Flatline have a conversation. At the end of which Dixie Flatline, uh, at, at the end of which Case says, "You know, you repeat yourself, man." and dixie flatline says yeah it's my nature exactly right so it's it's finding out what is real information and finding out what is real will <clears throat> that is choice that's the problem oedipus faces right he hears what the oracle says he tries to do something about it and winds up fulfilling what the oracle has told him he would do dixie flatline wants only one thing and the oracle gives him more than he wants and he's stuck and we hear that distant laughter as case walks along the beach at the end there's an incredible tragic ending just as it is for oedipus walking off again blind you know mm. uh so I, I think there's a mythic element to all of this of course it's set in our you know our time in the corporate world and all of that but i think it would go away and i can tell you that For my students, and I've used this book annually um, now since about 1987. Um, I can tell you that close after the book was published, my students found it incredibly exciting. Starting about um, 97 98, they thought of it as historically interesting, but really a little passe because wow. they'd had so many other things that were even more accelerated in their style. And beginning two years ago, my students have been saying, "Wow, this is really deep. This talks to the condition we're in," and they're loving it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and you know,
1: know, I I think the mythical elements don't really get fleshed out as much until you hit the second book in the trilogy. I mean, because that's when they all look back to what Case did with the AIs as when it changed. It's always referred to as when it changed. Um, and there's all this, uh, all these elements of the gods in cyberspace, you know, kind of the ghost in the machine kind of thing. Mm. And it, it gets really interesting. And I, I think everyone should read the other two books, too, at least the second one. I'm not sure about the third one necessarily, okay. but – it really expands that idea, and it, it kind of brings that question back. You know, what is humanity? And if you perpetuate yourself as a clone or as an AI, is it really you anymore? And you know, I thought those questions were really interesting.
0: I wanted to go back to uh, the the uh, that scene I was ta- talking about, Case's childhood, um, because I-, I was very I was. I'm very curious about how how we get to where they are. And I and I was talking with Tam last night about when even this story is set. The the year is not ever mentioned. But I can I, I can make a guess as to what the setting is exactly. But um I, I wanted to uh throw this this up because it makes me think of of uh his childhood being an urban street kid uh like in Rio de Janeiro today or in, in uh, India somewhere. Uh, so, this, so this is from pretty late in the book. It says, um, The style of the improvised fixtures suggested childhood, somehow. He remembered fortresses he'd built with other children on rooftops and in flooded sub-basements. A rich kid's hideout, he thought. This kind of roughness was expensive, what they called atmosphere. Uh, this is when he's going. He's he's in the uh, uh, Three Janes uh, Castle, and she's built a she's built a a little a kid's fortress in there from when she was a kid. Except it was all all the stuff that he did with real kipple. She made with fake kipple, <laughs> which is a pretty funny situation, but. It's true. If you if you go to a rich a rich man's house and you look at the, the tree house, right? It's it's built by carpenters to look rustic, right? <laughs> you know, made made by uh, looks like it's made by kids, but actually it was made, you know, on the level and <laughs> all the things that that make it uh, suggestive of childhood are artificial.
2: You know, that goes back at least to the eighteenth century in landscape architecture.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, where people built ruins. Yeah. Uh, so they could see them from their houses. And <coughs> excuse me. Um, and if they didn't have enough money to build a, a whole ruin, they built the facade of a ruin that they could <coughs> see from their house or mansion, and then the back of it was just lathing. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, when when you're immensely rich, you can you can sort of create that. When I went to Versailles, outside of Paris, there's a the whole backyard is you know it goes to the horizon. But um, as you're walking through the gardens, at one point you come upon a little village, and the little village is a a little village created like a like not a playhouse, but like a play village. Right.
2: That's little mo right.
0: It could be. It's been a long time, but uh, it's just French I, for
2: the Hamlet, I think.
0: Yeah, it's it was just is like <laughs> that's that's when you know you're rich when you don't just make a <laughs> a playhouse but you make a play village. Right, and I guess the servants come and, and pretend to be uh, the <laughs> people of the town,
2: and Marie Antoinette, you know, dressed up as if she were a peasant girl out on a picnic. At least that's right. what I was told when I visited there. Yeah.
0: Uh, um, in fact, I think there's a lot of, um, uh, interest in, you know, uh, what three Jane and her family, the Tessie Ashpools, uh, this is a really fucked up family. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> not only do they have, uh, you know, they put themselves to sleep and are killing each other in their, in their cold sleep and waking people up and killing each other and all of the horrible things that they're, they're, ing- I guess it's growing into themselves, um, the question is: Is why create a dynasty so that the dynasty will live on forever and not do anything? Right? They they build the the AIs so that they can uh, run the companies for them, and they'll be rich, and they are rich, but there's no point. There's no there's no goal, and because the whole world is untethered from uh, a goal like uh, a religious goal or a uh, so, sort of a moral um, uh, manif- manifesto, manifest destiny. You know, they, they they went up to the stars and discovered they didn't like space.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think... have. Sorry, go ahead, Jenny.
1: Oh well, I when I read the second two books, um, William Gibson says more about them. Like he he kind of flushes it out a little. And I actually have two little bits pulled out that I'd like to read, if you don't mind. Sure. Go for it. Um, I'm actually going to go backwards. This one's from Mona Lisa Overdrive, which is the third book. Um, and it's just one person explaining it to another. <laughs> Tessier Ashpool. Her family built Freeside Taurus, high-orbit pioneers. They say she killed her father. She's the last of the line. The money ran out years ago. She sold everything. Had her place, sawn off the tip of the spindle, and towed out to a new orbit. They used their money to keep themselves out of the news. So that kind of answers what you were saying, you know, they used the money to keep to themselves, I guess. Um, The mother was Tessier, the father Ashpool. They built Freeside when there was nothing else like it and got fantastically rich in the process, probably running a very close second to Joseph Fyrick when Ashpool died. Joseph Fyrick is something that figures into the second book a lot. And, of course, they'd gotten wonderfully weird in the meantime and and had taken to cloning their children wholesale. (laughs) Uh, So, let's see. That's from the third book. And then a really brief one from the second. Um, She's actually speaking to cyberspace because this particular character hears voices there. So, she says, I understand. You are someone else's collage. Someone brought the machine here, welded it to the dome, and wired it to the traces of memory, and spilled somehow all the worn sad evidence of a family's humanity, and left it all to be stirred and sorted by a poet. So there's this kind of sense that they dumped themselves into this matrix, and then other people had to, I guess, kind of make stuff out of it. The clones that were left, the AIs that were left...
2: I, I think there, are the, I think that I, I think you guys are, in a sense, both pointing to two different aspects of Tessier Ashpool. What's the point of it for the the individuals who are in it, and what does it stand for in the world in which they exist?
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, this is going to sound weird, but what the heck? Um, <laughs> um, I think. It, it, Every new communication technology that has ever come along, as far as I know, has had an initial <laughs> efflorescence in porn. <laughs> and in A Chorus Line, you know, which for a while was the longest-running show in the history of Broadway, there is an important song in which an entertainer, who is, after all, making her living by disporting her body – I mean, that's what it's a show about dancers and they make their living by being attractive to people, not by actually providing them with anything practical. Um, She talks about how she's going to be able to get more parts when she gets more parts. The song is called (laughs) Tits and Ass, right? It's Tits and Ass, Tessier and Ashpool, right? The mother was Tits and the father was Ash. And it's I mean, all they do is provide. You know something that the world finds entertaining, but I don't think pornographers are in it because they want to have lots of sex. I think most pornographers are in it because they want to have lots of money. Mm.
0: I think I think you uh, you, you really don't understand um, pornographers. I think pornographers love to make money, but they're happy to be in that industry.
1: You know they actually use the word aristocracy in the second book to refer to the family.
0: Oh, yeah. That's
1: a great parallel. You know, people that don't necessarily do anything anymore, but uh, we sure like to watch them do it. I mean, we being society. <laughs> uh,
0: I, I did want to go to Eric, uh, what you, your line, though, about you know, any uh, – you said communications technology, but uh, medium or media, right? Uh, the, the one that sort of gets short, short shrift in the, uh, this novel – Although it is featured prominently, is the sim stem, uh-huh. um, which uh, or stim sims, sim stem or sim stim. Uh, in any case, one of them is simulation, I guess, and the other one is stimulation. Right. And it's a recorded or, or real time um, experience of someone else's body and experiences. And um, this seems to have in in the novel. It seems to be have replaced, or the world of the novel, it seems to have replaced movies um, in that people are getting the latest SimStim. Right. And, um, and Case uses it uh, to flip into Molly's body and then flip back into cyberspace and flip back into the real world. Um, he switches between them, and so in that way it figures in. But, but more interestingly, I think it figures in to Molly's story uh, and and her medium, so sim I guess was explored in that movie uh, uh, with one of the Fines. Was it Joseph Finds or Ray Fines
2: That uh, end of like days end of, or whatever it was end, called.
0: The, yeah, it wasn't the end of days. Strange days.
2: Strange days, think, right? Yeah, well, which they, they wear that cap of that web cap. Yeah,
0: there. that's right. and I think that 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 one sort of explores that one part of this novel pretty well. Um, I'm not sure it's a great movie on its own, but uh, it certainly does explore that that little idea, and um, or that big idea. And um, in this novel, we've got lots of technologies that are sort of in the background, but the one that Molly tells, the one about her story of being a meat puppet, right? Um, to get her money, to get her implants and her enhancements... Uh, her razor claws and her uh, mirror shades, right? She has been, a, uh, I guess, a a slave hooker or something. Yeah, I'm was, not sure how, how to s- describe it, but, um, yeah, she had the bleed, like, in Johnny Mnemonic, between uh, her memories of, of her body being controlled by someone else and... Uh, her real life and and then she said one day she woke up in the middle of one of these sessions and they were over the dead body of that girl and that's why she had to kill Peter Riviera because Peter Riviera right it's all intertwined together in a beautiful um, in the beautiful thing that is this novel but but that <laughs> that is what people want to use it for right people do want to you can use the telephone for pornography people sure. uh, Uh, they did you know there were services available and i remember in then i don't know if it's still around but in in the 80s and 90s they even advertised it on television right there was uh call this number (laughs) you chat with singles and really it's not singles you're paying by the minute because (laughs) these are uh pornographers
2: right i don't know if it's still advertised in the u.s i haven't stumbled on it but last time i was in italy which was a year ago um Coming back to my hotel room late at night and flipping channels, there it is again, they're still
0: oh really, yeah, yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, certainly any medium <laughs> can be
2: used you can be used for that, but- and of course, science fiction I mean everybody knew this, I mean I mean it goes right back to the lotus eaters. Um, in Greek mythology, I and mean, Circe uh, is controlling people's minds and turning them into into beasts um, because they are attracted. And that goes back to that line about the sirens. We hear the siren song. Um, the sirens are Greek mythology, and we hear the siren song in in the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. But in science fiction, from the fifties on, at least, we have this worked out. The great, great the big ball of wax by Shepard Mead has people stopping having real sex because they can go into these movie theaters and be strapped into contraptions and have much more interesting sex lives um, through you know, this multisensory um, apparatus. And The Lion of Kamar* by Arthur Clarke in the late 40s um, has people who just stop doing anything because they live permanently with tube feeding while they're having this much more interesting life and getting their jollies however they want. Um, but it makes them be under someone else's control. They've just lost any sense of autonomy by buying the story and the story so often has to do with with sex. Give me give me a better, more exciting connection than I can find in real life. And in this book, if the most exciting connection you can find is a mechanical one described in terms of chrome rather than flesh with a woman who when you look deep into her eyes you, you see yourself. Exactly. Um, if, if that's the best you can do well, hell yeah cyberspace is going to be better.
0: Huh. Yeah. Uh, I I want to figure out there's something very strange that I'm still not hundred percent able to articulate going on in this world about motivation and and so so the impetus the the entire thrust of the novel <laughs> no pun intended uh, is towards is towards what neuromancer or wintermute uh, wants and all the characters who come into the story who are added to the, the team of heisters are have motivation or don't have motivation, but that all of their goals are subverted by the the puppet master who is the, the AI. So when when a case come in. A case comes in. He's really our viewpoint character. He he uh, wants to get a new liver so he can get back, or pancreas, whatever it is, and 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 get his uh, his nerves rewired so that he can uh, have cyberspace again and won't kill himself because he's trying to con the street into killing him. Um, then we meet Molly, and Molly is. Uh, motivated, but we don't understand how. What does she want? What does she need those claws for? Revenge. Revenge against?
1: I think it's supposed to be something happened before. There's a sense that she had a relationship before and that person was killed and she's going to get
0: Yeah, those that's Johnny, back. right? Yeah. <laughs> if, if, if we're following this. Right, yeah. if you
1: actually read the short story and not watch the movie. <laughs> yeah. But so I think, I mean, even though she kind of connects with Case, I think that her... That's not motivating to her.
0: Yeah, she's she was mo- she she sa- even says, uh, "You remind me of uh, this kid Johnny, right?"
1: Right, <laughs> yeah. right. And she actually uh, shows up in Mona Lisa Overdrive too. So her story's not over because yeah. she hasn't really gotten what she was looking for yet in this book. Yeah,
0: it's it's not really articulated. But mm-hmm. um, then then we meet uh, who's the next person to get joined into the group is. Uh, uh, are Corto, right? I guess that's not really his name, or that is really his. It's it's kind of unclear to <laughs> me who he is. Um, Armitage.
1: Yeah, he's um, the same as Corto. Yeah,
0: yeah, but but I, I don't know who like the guy has that body has a name, right? It has Corto is is the real name maybe,
3: I think and Armitage so. is
0: the construct. I thought
3: Wintermute um, turned Corto into Armitage after he was. Right, but there wasn't much Bert. left of Porto to begin with, right?
1: Yeah, and I think uh, we meet him as Armitage first in the novel.
0: We do. yeah, We do meet him. And his motivations are unclear. He comes to the novel as the puppet master, but truly he's he is but the puppet holding the puppet strings of another puppet, right? He is not himself running the show. He is the guy who's running the show, but that's like, he's I guess in a way he's like a rabbit in in the Vinge novel that we did not too long
1: ago right yeah and I don't think he he's knows the, that does he
0: no he't well if he does he it's certainly he, he seems really simple right
4: mm-hmm.
0: um, and he's very straightforward uh, and yet he has touches and eventually you know recalls a lot of his his uh, has flashbacks or whatever it is um, so his motivation can be understood, I think, as just being wholly constructed by, by the AI. Uh, and, I, I, and he wanted revenge, right? We're going to have the blood of, blood of our enemies on our hands, is what he says to Case. He thinks Case is an officer in his, his raiding on Russia. <laughs> That's not going to help Case, right? Because even if, even if it's <laughs> Uh, they're going after the AI who's controlling them. <laughs> they don't win. They don't win that way. And then, uh, keep going.
2: Yeah. I, I, I know that that the specific details of the motives of each of these people is important. Uh, and, and you're touching on them and I think pointing them out correctly. But at the risk of being reductionist, um, I'd make two observations. First, mm-hmm. that... All of them, as we see these motives expressed in the individual characters, could be thought of as a desire to be able to believe in your own free will. That they are all aware, one way or another, that they are being manipulated, and they would rather not be. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. this is also true for Neuromancer. Yeah. That's what Neuromancer is after is getting away from this <clears throat> so that he can go off, it can go off, and meet others of its own kind. Um, so so that part of this, as I say, is uh, they all of them are trying in a world that is determined, and it aren't all books worlds that are determined. I mean, no matter how many times you read the book, the same last line is going to be on the last page. Yeah. They all want to be able to come to believe that they have free will, and that's, I think, one of – I think that underlies all of their motivations. That's the first observation. The second observation is there are many ways that one could try to uh, demonstrate that one has free will. One could, for instance, wish to, um, to create a work of art so stunningly original and so wonderfully beautiful that people weep when they see it. Nobody here has that kind of positive view of the expression of free will. Everybody here, one way or another, wants to exercise power over someone else, whether it's yeah, for and revenge that's, or flat-out control or self-aggrandizement. And so it's not
0: Or, or perversion in the case of P- Peter Riviera, right? He, he well, says I'm right, uh, but my, my specialty is I'm perverse.
2: Right, but that's but the way he does it is from my view, that's his self-aggrandizement. He wants to demonstrate that he can make people be what they would not on their own want to be. That's, but, but we're in agreement about what he's doing. My point is if, if you were to think of a universe of ways in which one could choose to be able to believe you could express you, – you could believe that you have free will. You could, in a rough-and-ready way, say half the universe is positive and half the universe is negative. And in this book, all of the motives, all of the varieties of belief in the expression of free will are negative. And and when you said, as we very first began, Jesse, this is a book that has no morality, I don't think that it's a book that has no morality. I think it's a book in which we see that people don't even aspire Yes. To what we would consider moral. So it is by its absence that the book in fact makes its comment about modern morality.
0: Yes. Yeah, and and I think that is in part what makes it so shocking as a as a novel. Because um when you when you you, you if you look at it as just a heist novel, um it's just a piece of fluffy entertainment. But when the people in the world, you—who's uh, the bad guy in this book? That's my question, right? Who isn't? Yeah, they're all bad. And the only thing we get is—is is you're bad to me. <laughs> if I'm case, you know, uh, that guy's that guy's uh, not got my interests at heart. But I don't blame him for that. And this guy, he's going to die. But that's just because that's the contract I've made with him.
2: <laughs> right. But we keep There's seeing no... little glimpses. We see little glimpses of what could be better, and then they're withdrawn. And it seems yeah. to me, when you said before you were speaking metaphorically, <clears throat> you know, we've gone to the stars, and it turns out that they're not very, <laughs> very pretty. Um, the one I, act—I was quoting the family that—that that,
0: or, or the description of, of what the Tessier Adhules. Right.
2: Excuse me. Yes. Yeah. Um, the the one um, the one thing that I believe one could see in this novel as a genuine gift there's something that someone does for someone else just to make the other person feel good is Molly giving the shuriken the star-shaped yeah, weapon
0: and that's the to that's case. the ultimate totem right Ex- throughout the whole book
2: exactly and in fact case never learns to use it and when she's gone Almost at the very end of the novel, back in a hotel room, but this time alone, he's so angry at his situation that he finally throws the shuriken, the throwing star, and he lodges it in a television screen. It goes right back to that first line of the novel, as if, well, the thing that I really need to destroy is the whole damned world that I live in. And there's this one possible gift And it gets misused because of the kind of people who live in this world. And so having little hints like that one gift not function as gifts should, having sex not actually turn out to have anything like romance, I mean, those little possibilities, having a family like Tessier Ashpool – demonizing, you know, destroying their own children, of, you know, making their children nothing but an expression of ego, every time we get a hint of what could be on the positive side in values, in morals, it gets undercut in this novel.
0: I don't think this, in a way, you know, people might say it's a dystopia, but I don't think it is a dystopia as much as it's dystopic. It's It's, the world is really depressing, you know, certain way but that's because there is no ultimate aspiration other than you know the coveting and it's sort of ambivalent in a way but it is it's the the it's the coveting of of riches and and uh new new tattoo i mean they don't say tattoos a lot but basically this is people doing tattoos and um body modification and The expression, you know, the ultimate in self-expression and wearing the clothing, you know, uh, what they're, what what rats has a a prosthetic arm, right? Right. That is old and Russian military, and of course he could have replaced it, but he likes the way it makes him unique, right? Right. Well, that's, that's all nice, well and good, you, you you're wearing your tattoos you've got your colored hair you've got your mirror shades um, that's what you want to do that's what life is about. That's really dystopic to me right It's that this world is a dystopia in 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 the sense that there is no striving for a, 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 an escape. there's only uh, striving for more or better.
2: that's because you're for, still for me. meat. Yeah, you're still meat. You're not flesh.
0: In a way, it might be that you know he's saying uh, the world is going to crap because we are all going towards leaving the meat behind, and what we see of the world and the relationships between people is is what happens when you focus on the self and not focus on the society.
2: I agree, but I think it is not. Again, it should be and, not not but. I agree, and I think that um, the the book makes us understand that. I'm looking on page nine. Um, you look tired, okay? Uh, not if I not if I take my pills, he said. As a tangible wave of longing hit him, lust and loneliness riding in on the wavelength of amphetamine. This is Burroughs language, it sounds like. He remembered the smell of her skin in the overheated darkness of a coffin near the port. Her fingers locked across the small of his back. All meat, all the meat, he thought, and all at once. Wage, she said, narrowing her eyes. He wants to see you with a hole in your face. Well, you know, um, I, I've got five holes in my face. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, An extra one, I think, is what she means.
2: Well, but that's not what it says. And it seems no. to me the point is that that the holes in our face can go two ways. You know that that you can spit, which is what Molly does instead of cry, or you can you can uh, you can kiss. You can ingest food and you can vomit things back up you can see out and people can look in and in this world everybody's holes become one way Mm. and i wants to see he wants to see with a hole in his your face in a sense means i want to violate you i want i mean obviously it does but but it's it, it stands in contrast to the holes that are already there that could go two ways, that could be communicative, that could build relationships instead of merely destroying the meat. And this goes throughout the novel, that we see only one half of it. Well, we see mostly one half of a person and the other half is only a hinted possibility, which disappears. All right.
1: You know, I'm kind of cheating because I know what happens to Case <laughs> in the end, like past the end of Neuromancer. But what if we consider that Molly never being in his life again is a good thing? Because she's in this life of revenge and, you know, she's completely altered herself, her person to be in this world. So if he never had her in his life anymore, (laughs) what could he do instead? You know, maybe that would let him walk away. Maybe that would let him get married and have four children just saying, <laughs> uh, you know, Jenny. You
2: get I, get I, off the I, drugs, I, Jenny, That's not cheating at all. When, but, when, when, and when, that when, is when, what
1: Gibson has happened to him.
2: But that, but that's it's not cheating. It, really, it's not cheating. You just happen to to know what's going on, in, you know, in the other books. But the fact is that when Molly leaves, she leaves a note that says, "You got a jack, and I've got a tussle." Right? She says to him, "It's." And she's not saying I'm leaving you. Because I don't want to be with you. She's the one person who gave a gift. She's saying, I know me and I've got to be a certain way and you've got to be a different way. So we can't be together.
1: But she might be wrong.
2: She might be wrong, but... um,
1: About him. She might not be wrong about herself,
2: but... But so Case can clearly want her and is not happy that she left. And she could be wrong about Case. But the fact that she believes that that's true of herself would make her wrong about Case, for Case. I mean, would make her wrong for Case.
1: Oh, sure. I mean, she might have done him a huge favor. I mean, I think we're supposed to feel like it's tragic in some senses, but in another, it kind of opens this world back up again.
2: Indeed. I, I, that's what I'm saying. It's not unfair. She's, right. She's expressed that.
0: He got a new pancreas.
1: That's true. <laughs> does he really? That's, they throw it in as part of the surgery.
2: Yes, so. but does he really have anything happen?
1: Oh, well, he I gets off the drugs. I know. Yeah, but the pa- Yeah, because he does try taking some and they don't do anything because of how they rerouted it. Yeah.
2: I, don't so know, I just, I'm one, so cynical. I'm not sure they're even drugs. I just you know,
1: <laughs> it's a control thing. Either I'll way,
2: yes, that's true.
0: That's uh, true. Uh, you notice how much people smoke in the in this book? It's unbelievable. <laughs> Everybody's smoking. It's noir.
3: <laughs> I guess so.
2: Good point, Tom.
3: <clears throat> Actually, I was thinking of Cage. as just like a regular noir central character. A uh, very cool. Maybe uh, women won't relate to him as much. Um, do you know Joe Walton's uh, review of all the Higos up to like 2001? And she said uh, she hated Nora Master because she just didn't like any of the characters in it, and she didn't want to be patient enough to uh, follow them all.
1: Um, oh, Joe! I
0: think I think I think you can love a book that has horrible characters. Um, and although I I can't say I loved Case, I I really, I have very little in common with him other than, I guess we both like going on the internet. (coughs) (laughs) Video games. Uh, Yeah, I guess he kind of likes video games. I'm not a big Shurikens fan or anything like that. I don't like drugs. I don't smoke, right? But uh, because he's our viewpoint character, uh, and I think he is, you know, if he's not sympathetic in the sense that uh I understand uh, everything he wants to do because he wants to kill himself. That's kind of strange. I still find I still find it's very easy to to follow him through this world. What I really appreciate the, about this book though is the world, and that on top of that is layered in what is really a great uh, motivation for the plot. Right? why do so many novels not work is because they've got one or they've got the other, I think this one has both it has an amazing world very well thought through and it has the consequence of that uh, make the plot function and that's why you know a lot of dystopian fiction works I think is because you've got people fighting against the system this one, you've got a dystopian world or a dystopic uh, world with dystopic characters, and they are working through it, but they don't come to uh, a social conclusion. They come to a individual conclusion. And that sort of subverts it, makes it more noir.
1: Well, when the world's out of control, it's all you can really do.
2: <laughs> Indeed. I don't actually like Case either, I guess. But I feel deep sympathy for him. One of the reasons I feel deep sympathy for him is is what you two guys have just been saying, Jenny and Jesse, that in in this world, someone who still struggles on um, deserves a certain kind of credit. But as I look at the other people with whom he interacts, oh, and the other intelligences with whom he interacts, um. He's the only one that actually wants to get what he wants to get without voluntarily wanting to hurt anyone else.
0: Sounds about right.
2: And I mean, that's a pretty low moral standard to meet. But in this world, he's the highest because that, in fact, is a standard he meets.
1: So well, well, when table, he was working nice for... Guy.
3: Sorry. That's it. Go ahead.
1: Well, I was just saying he might not be hurting people physically, but he's damaging their businesses and their corporations. Oh, I, oh, I, I <laughs> oh,
0: no. oh terrible. Oh, absolutely. I, in I a absolutely. pocketbook. I,
1: I, didn't, I think I didn't mean people
0: die as a consequence of what he does. Yeah, but uh, in the, the Panther modern strike, they they kill 14 people.
2: Sure, right? His desire is to have money and and ease. His desire is not like Peter Riviera's to impose himself on someone else, but actually to be able to share intimacy with somebody else. His desire is not to kill his desire. I mean, even when he's drafted into doing bad things, it's not because I mean other bad things. It's not that he goes in and says, good, now I get to do this stuff. It's just the opposite. It's, I have to do this stuff. That, that's what I meant. I meant physical harm to people, right. which other characters actually want to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and in some ways, can you blame him? He's the best at what he does, so. <laughs> <laughs> but that's
0: not true. Um, no, it's actually not true. It, in the book, in, it, it's very curious uh, because at one point, quite late, you know, they're, they're on uh, the spindle or whatever it's called, the space station. I don't know habitat, um, the o- O'Neill colony or whatever it is, uh, Preside I guess it's called, and the two French uh, three French youths who aren't really youths who work for the Turing uh, Authority.
2: Bullish. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, well, yeah. The, the, they say we work well in gray, in legal gray areas, you know. So they're not sympathetic, right? Right. They, they'll. We're told later on by Neuromancer or Wintermute. That uh, they would have happily killed him, right? And they, they threaten him in many ways. But um, the thing is, is at that point uh, they tell they tell uh, Case how they found him and they found out what was happening um, because uh, Corto had had given money to uh, had given this this technology to fix case to the doctors in chiba and those doctors in chiba had patented and made six patents from it and this is this had uh triggered um uh some warnings warning flags and they started investigating and followed in and discovered that there was a uh, uh, potential cheering violation going to happen so all of the, they got on to case and the uh, and the um the heist that was upcoming because uh, they the AI chose Case. Because Case had to be fixed in order to work. And It's not that he was the best at what he did. It's that he was amongst the best. But why did it pick him then? I was thinking, well, it picked him because then it could force him to do what he wanted. I guess... It's either a hole in the plot or that. I can't see any other explanation. But he's not—he's not the best console cowboy in the history of the universe. He's not like Neo in the Matrix, right? A lot of people try and compare this this novel to the Matrix, and really, I think the only thing they really have in common is the word Matrix. Uh, I don't, uh, because that the Matrix is a is a is a fairy tale. Uh, with a, pro- a prophecy, <laughs> and you know, batteries and all—all all, all that. This is a real science fiction story in the sense it's—it's it's about a, um, the consequences of uh, technological change. Among well, other both- things. Indeed, amongst other
3: things. Well, they're both cyberpunky with a, a network and people plug in and. <laughs> I look at Trinity as kind of like uh, Molly, except without the eyes.
0: I think the Matrix certainly couldn't exist without Neuromancer, but uh, yeah, I, I see it more as a—it's a fairy tale because I mean all that prophecy stuff. There's no prophecy in in this book, right?
2: right? I I we we could of course compare the two works. Um, there's no doubt, but. um... <laughs> For for my money, such little as it may be, um, except for the visuals, which are stunning in the Matrix, um, there is not a single aspect of the movie that seems to me to be as good as its counterpart in this book.
0: Yeah, Matrix is is really good up to a certain point, and it you know. I'm much more willing to read the second and third book in this series. Uh, uh, I don't even want to admit it's a series, but uh, then I am willing to watch the second and third Matrix movies. Um, And I think it's because um, (laughs) Gibson has managed to do something amazing, and I think the Matrix has managed to visualize a little bit of what was going on in this book. Uh, on the page
1: well and to be fair I think the books in the trilogy you know they're not following the same characters in each one it's the same world and they're loosely related to each other but I mean you wouldn't even have to read one before you read the other for it to make sense I don't think no and that helps
2: (laughs) there are fairy tale movies that I think work perfectly well and are as good as this book uh, in some sense, uh, I think one could make that argument for Star Wars. I mean, the first yeah. movie to be released. Um,
0: That's a prophecy movie as well,
2: right? Yeah, it's a prophecy movie. It's a fairy tale movie. It's a let's create an interesting other world movie. Um, it's not useful in terms of specific predictions about t- technologies. Um, no, it's, it's the opposite of that. Exactly. And yet, I think, a, I think it's think it 's a a wonderful movie in many, many ways, and it engages us in many ways that really matter to us um, fairy tales often do it 's just that the matrix doesn 't happen to be a fairy tale movie that does that um, it, it, you know it gets stuck in bullet time woo yeah. uh, i
0: I think it works very well as a movie as long as you uh, you turn the sound off so you don 't have to hear the line about batteries. Well, that's <laughs> it's just like ruining a perfectly good film. You, you can improve that film massively. Just delete that one scene.
2: Well, given how much all, all four of us read, it seems to me that there's another problem with The Matrix. Um, every time you pick up a reference in Neuromancer, it turns out to be productive and useful and uh, weaves in well with the rest of the book. Every time you pick up a reference in um The Matrix, you think, well, they found something else on their bookshelf and threw it in.
0: Yeah. If you want to look at a Wachowski movie that really works, uh, V for Vendetta. V for Vendetta improves slightly on on the the comic book, which is pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, it was pretty great.
2: Yeah.
0: It's a fantastic movie.
1: I think what I would recommend is read books two and three of the Sprawl trilogy and listen to the soundtrack for The Matrix at the same time. (laughs)
3: <laughs> that's what I did. That sounds all right. Maybe Keanu Reeves but, can
0: narrate it or something. Yeah, there there is something there is something going on in in um, in the difference between the two is is that Neuromancer is a world where people who read it say that's cool, I want to live there, and and then you look over at them you say you do realize that that be a really horrible place to live, right? And they say yeah, but. They have cool tech, <laughs> right? It's the cool tech that they they dig, not the depressing, uh, uh, gritty, uh, whatever you know. The atmos, the oppressive atmosphere of of moral um, uh, the constraint, dissolution of morality. Yeah, there's there's no. I'm I'm not a guy who goes around pushing morality all the time, but I think if there's nothing. And it looks like this is pretty 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 boring not boring pretty terrible no, it's, terrible it's place grim
2: but live. that's that's the that's what the book is doing is letting us see how grim it becomes if everything is ceded to the machine and the moment rather than the the, the the spirit and the and and the sense of, of values
0: and uh, yeah so I I would say that the Matrix the the movie version of I guess the the Matrix movie is something that is more like that. Ooh, wow! Isn't that cool? Uh, look at like uh, the way Gibson writes. He's he writes descriptively about mirror shades and and products and the he he likes the the labels from the the products. He likes saying them and talking about them and and just you know describing. Uh, the notches and <laughs> all of that. Well, the the movie of the Matrix does that. It does the visual, but it doesn't have the 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 weight, the gravitas of the of the novel. Not that they're really related, but speaking of which, um, I want. I guess we're just about done. You guys got anything else?
4: Um, <laughs>
3: I was gonna say I felt like the second half dragged for me, but uh, I guess you don't feel that way. Uh, I think
0: it's not as uh, sprightly as the first half, but I, I still think it works very well. I mean, this is a nine-hour book compared to most. That's that's pretty good.
2: Uh, one one s- oh, small plot that I Jenny, would, sorry,
0: and now Tom is writing.
2: Uh, one one How small you- point that I would add is that. Uh, uh, there's an awful lot of uh, of all of the many, many, many references in this book. The one that in terms of science fiction development is worth keeping in mind is Frankenstein because the argument made by the Turing police, uh, you know, would you betray your race? What is it that you're willing to turn loose and so on right. is, is exactly is a question that uh, – to which Victor thinks he knows the answer and he uses it as justification for not fulfilling a paternal responsibility toward his own creation but that notion of what do we owe to what we create and can what we create have autonomy of its own That that is in science fiction from 1818 forward and the references in this book to that uh, that is in Gibson to, to Shelley are real and so just in terms of uh, Completeness. I think we ought mm-hmm. to make make clear that the antecedents of this book aren't just the things we've discussed in the '60s and the '50s, but in fact are uh, nor just the ones that start in the ancient world with the Greek mythology, but some other stuff that's potent in the history of science fiction.
0: Absolutely. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast please join us at www.sffaudio.com.